0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we are in Leviticus chapter 4. So I invite you to turn there if you have Copies of the Bible, if you are using the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 82 and find it there. Leviticus is all about how do we as sinful people approach a holy God? How do we not only approach him, but then how do we commune with him? What does it look like to know and walk with our God all the days of our lives? And we're in this first part of the book. The first 16 chapters are really dealing with mostly how do we approach a holy God? because our sin has created a chasm that cannot be overcome by our own efforts. So God alone has provided the means for us to come to him. And where the book begins with five sacrifices, and tonight we come to the fourth of these five sacrifices. It's called the sin offering. And um, before we read, I just want to sketch out what we will be reading so you can wrap your minds around it a little bit. We're looking at this sin offering, and there's four different main sections of chapter four. We're just going to read the first section that addresses the anointed priests. When they sin, what kind of sin offering they have, to, they have to, uh, to present. We're going to be skipping over the section about the whole congregation, but the whole congregation is addressed. When they sin, they have to present an offering to the Lord. There's a section when a leader sins, what he has to do. And then there's a section when any one of the common people sins, what they must do. Oh, So we'll just read about the anointed priest as representative, and we'll talk about the details of each one as we get through that. And then we'll skip over to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, where we'll read about some of these particular sins that you have to bring a sacrifice for. And then we'll, we won't read the rest of that section, verses 7 through 13, that speaks about particular sacrifices, animals, and otherwise sacrifices that ought to be brought. We'll speak of those uh, in the sermon as appropriate. So for now, we will read Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll skip over to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary." And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with all its with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. And then chapter five, verses one through six. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of an unclean livestock, or a carcass of of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt... Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with, which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sorts of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his, his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, He shall bring to the Lord, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was the movie Aladdin, It was a couple years ago. I think maybe a new release came out. I watched it again and I realized how much of the story I did not remember at all from when I was a kid. But the one part I remember as a kid loving about the movie was when Aladdin and his monkey Abu, when they enter into the Cave of Wonders. So you're there standing on on uh in the desert and you see this rock formation that looks like a tiger and somehow Aladdin's able to go down into the into this cave. From the outside it's it's a strange looking rock formation. There's not much to see, you don't really know what's going on, but you enter into the this mouth of this tiger in the rock. And you walk into the cave of wonders. And as a kid, my imagination was set aflame to see all the gold, all of, all of the treasures that are in the cave. And of course, you get the, the genie's lamp in the cave as well. But you see just this incredible scene of wealth and gold and riches. And there's something of that in her passage today, where we might be tempted to walk past a simple rock formation that looks like an animal and keep trucking down the path. Instead of stopping to to dive into a text like ours. Scripture is such a beautiful thing because the deeper you go, the more beautiful it becomes, the more riches you unfold in it. And the sin offering is a glorious thing. And I kept coming back to this image of the cave of wonders. And we have so many riches to get to tonight. As the name of this sacrifice in the ESV suggests, the sacrifice of the sin offering helps us understand Sin. But many scholars today are pointing out that the title of sin offering may not be the most helpful. And I tend to agree because all of the sin, all the offerings have to have something to do with sin. They're all telling us something about sin. So it's a little bit confusing to name this one the sin offering when the other ones have to do with it as well. And there's debate: what does the exact Hebrew word or Hebrew root mean? Um, but Scholars generally say the best way to think of this, and I agree with them, is the purification offering. So this is the purification offering. I'm going to try to use that term throughout the night. Maybe I might say sin offering from time to time. But this is a purification offering because the main function of this offering is to cleanse and to purify. This is is the first mandatory offering. The first three offerings were not mandatory. You could bring them if you wanted to. But this one is mandatory for every single Israelite. It says in verse two, if anyone sins unintentionally, then in verse three, then he shall offer this purification offering. If you sin unintentionally, you must come and make this offering. It's mandatory. And there's two main cases where this offering was presented. First, and we don't really see this coming up in this chapter much, we see hints at it, but this is often used to purify certain ceremonial uncleanliness. So we saw some examples of if you accidentally touch a, a dead carcass and become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, then you are to present the purification offering. Later in Leviticus, there's certain cases where you're, you're told you must present a sin offering to cleanse yourself from the ceremonial uncleanness. So that's one case, but the case that's really its center of attention in chapter 4 and 5 of Leviticus is what is translated as unintentional sin. There's various kinds of it, which we'll come to in time, but this was offered for sin that individuals committed. just want to briefly sketch the practice of what this uh, sacrifice would look like. When you committed a sin, what would you have to do? So try to translate some of the technical language here. When you were required to, you would bring the proper animal to the tabernacle or temple. You'd bring it to the tent of meeting. And of course, as we said every time, this is not something you'd go through the motions to do. This is something, this is a worship service. You come in faith, you come with songs, you come confessing your sin, and particularly you confess your sins in the next step when you lay hands upon the animal and you kill the animal, very much like some of the other offerings. And then once the animal is killed, the priest then steps in and takes the blood from the dead animal and splashes it on various temple furniture. And it disposes the rest of the blood by pouring it out at the base of the altar of burnt offerings, the main altar where the burnt offerings were offered in the courtyard of the temple. And then once the blood was dealt with, then the best parts of the animal, called the fat in the translation, the best parts of the animal was removed to be burnt on the burnt offering. All the fat, the best parts of the animal were burnt and offered to God as a sacrifice. And this was done exactly the same way the peace offering was done. Some of the meat would then be taken and given to the priests for them personally, um, for their own families and sustenance. But then the remainder of the animal would be taken outside of the camp and would be burned. Um, it would all be burned in one ash heap. And then at the end of all this, there'd be this declaration to the offer that your sins are forgiven. You are atoned for and your sins are forgiven. And so as we think about sin and its importance Uh, in this offering, we see that sin, no matter how small, renders us guilty and polluted before God, but he has provided a sacrifice to purify us from it. So a sin, no matter how small, renders us guilty and polluted before God, but he has provided a sacrifice to purify us from it. And so we'll look at three things this evening. First, the guilt of sin. Second, the pollution of sin. And third, the grace of sin. conviction. Let's first look at the guilt of sin. And this comes into view when we think of sin in a legal sense, a legal sense, a judicial sense, because sin makes us guilty. And we know this. We all know this, right? But this sacrifice is a sacramental sign and seal, not just of the guilt of sin, but of the purging of guilt, of the forgiveness of sins, it talks about these unintentional sins. But what are some of these unintentional sins? What does this mean? Well, I have five different categories of unintentional sins that could be included under that umbrella term. The first is a kind of negligence. You unknowingly do an action. So think you're driving down the road and you're in a conversation or you're following uh, the, the car behind you and you begin speeding. Well, you're breaking the law, but you're doing so negligently. You're not intentionally doing that. You're doing it negligently. You're not paying attention. You're unknowingly doing it, but you're still, if the police pulled you over, you would have no defense because you are breaking the law. Second level is mistake. Maybe you think the speed limit's 55, but it's really 45. You're still breaking the law, but this is a level of, this is doing so on a mistaken understanding. Or maybe you're at the park and you grab somebody else's backpack and you take it home with you. You don't realize it till you're home, right? You've, by mistake, broken the law. Related to this is a third category of unknowingly sinning. Now, I know it's a sin to steal something, but in 1999, I didn't know that Napster was stealing other people's stuff. And so you unknowingly steal other people's stuff and download it on your computer until you realize, oh, this is stealing. This is a violation of God's law. Chapter five, verse four gives an example of uttering rash words, and a rash oath or vow that you take. This is the fourth category. And so this is kind of an unthinking response to something that's going on around you. Maybe you unthinkingly respond with anger, maybe words, maybe actions, maybe thoughts, but this rash, quick response, anger, maybe pride or lust, but there's that vis- visceral response that, that leaps out of you, almost like, where did this come from? And that's what's spoken of in chapter five, these rash words, these quick, sudden actions. But then I also think there's a fifth category. And we'll again circle back to this later. But The fifth category is an inner war that, give, that we give into these sinful desires. In, in the midst of an inner war with sin, we give in to sin. We see this in Romans 7, where Paul writes, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not, what evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's a war inside. He wants to do good, but he does evil. He hates evil, but still does it anyway. There's this war, and he loses a battle with war and ends up Sinning, So here there's a lack of premeditated, intentional, cold-blooded intention. I think we can call this unintentional sin. So all of these from negligence, which we would say is less heinous than these, these higher degree of sins, they are all serious though. And the point of the sacrifice is to remind us that every single sin, no matter how small, no matter how tiny, renders you guilty before God. You are morally responsible for your sin. You are morally culpable for even the smallest sin of negligence. You are all guilty and subject to eternal judgment. There's no small sins exception in a righteous righteous judge's courtroom. You don't get off the hook for your small sins. And this mandatory sacrifice reminded Israel of that. Every little small sin, you must offer a sacrifice for it. You must be reminded that you are guilty in your sin and you need a sacrifice. And it's a weighty responsibility to to catalog every one of your sins like this, to remember all of your sins and then to bring them before the congregation and confess them before them. But I love that the firm, objective pronouncement is always tied to this sacrifice. Your sins are forgiven, right? The, the purpose of this whole sacrifice is not just to make you sit and wallow in your sins, but it's the, the outcome that's for the people of God to remind you that your sins are forgiven. You go through this whole process of dividing up the pieces of the inside of the animal and splashing the blood here and there. And the point and the goal of all this is for you to hear you are guilty, but now you're forgiven. You stand righteous before God. Leviticus 4:31, in the section speaking to the, the common Israelite, says, "The priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. What a joy to be able to walk out of worship with that burden taken off your back, to know walking away from the presence of God that my sins are forgiven, that I saw that animal burned up to represent my sins being purged. it underscores the necessity of blood to forgive the necessity of the death of a righteous life of a pure life it took the death of this goat or this lamb or this bird that you would be forgiven it took the life it was costly it is bloody and all of this shows us the seriousness of sin and the preciousness of divine grace there's a principle here uh, that i want to just address briefly. It's this principle that there is a greater heinousness in sin if you have greater authority. And we didn't read all four of these sections that address the high priest or the the priests, the congregation of Israel, a leader, and then a common Israelite. But we see a difference between these four categories and what they were required to bring for atonement for sin. The anointed priest was the high priest or maybe some other priests. Or when the entire congregation sinned, a corporate sin of some kind, they had to offer a young bull, a large bull. But a young, healthy, vivacious bull was required to atone for the sins. But if a leader, and it's usually, uh, maybe some would translate this a prince, usually someone with civil or civic or political authority, it could be applied uh, broadly to others as well. But if a leader sinned, they had to bring a male goat without defect. But then if we have any of the common people of Israel, any member in good standing of the people of Israel, they had to offer a female goat without blemish or a female lamb without blemish. And if they weren't wealthy enough to be able to bring those, they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Or even if they didn't, couldn't afford that, they could bring fine flour. So we see this gradation of the high priest who represents Israel. And when he sins, the text says, he brings guilt upon all of Israel. He had a bigger offering. So we see here that the greater your authority, the larger your sacrifice is because your sin is more heinous. It is true that when a leader sins, it is more heinous than when somebody who is not in authority sins. It's an important principle that we glean from our passage but I think the main take home for us is that we cannot let any sin go unchecked, even the small sin that we think isn't a big deal. It all needs to be acknowledged and confessed to God and to be repented of. That that little errant thought that you had, that little white lie, a little thing you did that nobody in the world will ever know about. It's not murder, but it's sin. You are guilty before almighty God for them. And yes, this principle of authority, officers in Christ flock, your sins are more pungent to God because you are called to be an example to the flock. But though you don't, you don't have to go and sacrifice an animal though. Why? You have the true ultimate sacrifice for you. You run to Jesus Christ instead the one who has offered himself as the once for all sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice as we read earlier. Jesus Christ is your sacrifice and the smallest of your sins to the very greatest were forgiven by him. So let us grow in seeing and acknowledging our sins, our little sins, because as we understand the greatness of our sin, even in little ways, we grow in appreciating the grace of Jesus Christ. And we can pray like the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We want to know our hearts, to know the sins that even today we are not aware of, that we would grow in our understanding of grace. And as the Israelites left the worship service, they knew they were forgiven. And thus, as you and I, when we, when we leave the sanctuary of God, this is why every single week we confess our sins publicly, we confess our sins privately, but there is the assurance of pardon, that your sins are forgiven. What a joy to walk out of worship knowing you are not, you don't stand guilty, you are forgiven. And you don't need to continue to feel the guilt of your sin. You no longer bear it, it has been born by Christ. So the guilt of sin points us to the depth of our sin, but the glories of Christ. And now let's consider the pollution of sin. And so the pollution of sin, we look at sin from a, a fellowship, a, a relational, a, a communal aspect, from, from a communal perspective, where sin pollutes and renders us unable to draw near to God. It makes us dirty. The sprinkling of blood all through scripture. We see it a lot here in Leviticus. The sprinkling of blood is something that's symbolizing cleansing and cleaning. Sprinkling blood from a righteous victim cleanses what is being sprinkled upon. Different people, it's interesting, are required to sprinkle different things. The Blood is required to be sprinkled upon different things based on who has sinned. So we go back to our, our four, the four different groups of people that the, the chapter addresses. When the anointed priest or the whole congregation sins, the, the blood is taken inside the tent of meeting, inside the holy place, and the curtain to the holy of holies is sprinkled, as is the horns of the altar of incense in the holy place. So the, the, the picture there is that the pollution of sin is invading even the dwelling place of God. God cannot dwell with his people when pollution enters the temple. When a leader or any one of the common people sins, the sprinkling stayed outside of the, the building itself into the courtyard. And the sprinkling there was on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. And the altar of burnt offering, it had these, these corners that were kind of shaped up in a upward trajectory and they called them the horns. And it, and it, is symbolic of the the fellowship that we have with God. And so sprinkling these horns was to purify the very fact that we now can have fellowship with God, to show us that now the purging is taking place. The the filth is being removed, and now fellowship with God can be reinstituted. And so with greater responsibility and authority comes greater pollution due to one's sin. The priest infects the interior of the tabernacle or the temple, and makes God-dwelling place unapproachable for, any, for anyone. And this is helpful for us to think of our own sin, because sin not only renders you guilty, but it creates barriers to your communion with God. Paul Tripp has a phrase, and I paraphrase. He said one time, every time you sin, God becomes less real to you. Every time you sin, God becomes less real to you. Because every time you sin, you are turning your back on God. Every time you sin, there's, a, there, there's greater pollution. And God becomes less real to you. His promises become less certain. His very presence becomes less true to you. And it makes it easier the next time to sin because you've lost the sense of the sweetness of the fellowship. And knowing God. And so this shows us the danger of sin. We end up in a dark cave without realizing where we are. When we come to our senses, we're completely disoriented and we don't realize the harm that we've done because we've been polluted by sin. Our minds are darkened and there's no understanding. But in Christ, but in Christ, we are cleansed from sin the pollution is washed away we are made pure and we read this earlier the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purified our consciences from dead works to serve the living god the blood of jesus christ purifies The blood of Jesus Christ allows us to know and commune with God. The blood of Jesus Christ removes the cloud of sin and reorients our minds and our affections that we would know God truly and rightly. And as we individually and collectively are the temple of God, Christ purifies us. And now we can enjoy his presence that communion and fellowship with us, with with him. He purges impurity from us. He makes us clean and removes the pollution from sin. And in the same way, we run to Christ to be cleansed from the guilt of sin. We run to Christ to be cleansed from the pollution of sin, to be cleansed as he reorients our wills and our desires. What a blessing this is. As As God was teaching these very things to his Old Covenant people, he shows us again afresh today. These things are still true, but now in Christ. So the pollution of sin is great, but Christ's sacrifice cleanses from this pollution. And then finally, the grace of conviction. The grace of conviction. The most difficult part for me with this text was what to do with the reality that this sacrifice only covers unintentional sins. What do we do with intentional sins? Do we not commit intentional sins if we're honest with our heart? Yes, I did evil. I decided to sin. Numbers 15, I think, provides some help here. Numbers 15 is a chapter uh, that really rehearses a lot of what we read. That if somebody sins unintentionally, they need to offer a purification offering for atonement and forgiveness. But then verse 30 says this, but the person who does anything with the high hand reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Numbers 15 goes on to give an example of this example of this is a man gathered sticks on the Sabbath. And he's caught gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And the people take him to Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation. And they say, what do we do with this man? And the Lord told Moses, take him outside the camp and have him stoned. He was cut off from the people. He His iniquity was upon him. He bore the sin of his his own doing. This is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying that this collecting sticks on the Sabbath. What? That deserves death? Really? But there's a couple phrases in this description that I think are really helpful. And it helps us understand what unintentional sin is. Unintentional sin, based on Numbers 15, is anything that is not done with a high hand, that is not reviling the Lord, that is not done despising the word of the Lord. I think the intentional sin are things that are conscious, deliberate, premeditated, cold, calculated breaking of God's law. These kinds of breaking of God's law that admits no humility before God is the member of the covenant community who declares, I want nothing to do with God and his word. I am the Supreme Lord and I know his law. I know what he said, but I don't care. That's what this man collecting sticks on the Sabbath said. said, I know six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day belongs to the Lord God. You shall do nothing. You shall worship him alone. I know that, but I'm going to go collect sticks anyway. I don't care what he says. I am the, I'm my own God. I am my Supreme Lord. He doesn't think but what he's done is wrong. He doesn't care. God is dead to him. And the essential component that's missing for intentional sins is any sense of conviction whatsoever. There's no conviction of sin. There's no remorse. There's no humility before an almighty God. And that man will be utterly cut off. That man can present no sacrifice to God for atonement because that man doesn't even think God exists. That man doesn't care anything of him. And so what it seems to me is that within this category of unintentional sins are included all, any who comes in humility and conviction of their sins to repent before a holy God. Hebrews 10 has a parallel to this idea says this in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's a lot to talk about there, a lot to talk about in Hebrews chapter 10. But that same idea is repeated there. If you sin deliberately, if you say, I don't care what God says, I don't care what his word says, I am the master of my own destiny. God is dead to me. There is not a sacrifice for sins for you. You will bear your own guilt. And the parallel to cutting off with stoning of the Old Testament is today excommunication. It's not fun. It's not something I want to talk about. But the reality is if if we find ourselves in that place of deliberate sinning, Paul says the sacrifice of Christ does not cover you. You are cut off from the people of God. It's not the people of God cutting you off. You have cut yourself off because you've said God is dead to me. So for us, when you have the pang of conscience for your sin, use that as a moment to turn to God. Use that as the opportunity to say, Lord, I sin and I repent. I hate it. It is a grace from him when your heart burns within you, when your conscience pricks you. It is a pain that you must never silence. But insofar as you have sinned against God, turn to him. He will receive you. This sacrifice will cover you. Jesus Christ will cover all who come to him in humility and faith. But if you feel no pain of conscience, if you're committing that sin with a high hand, if you're reviling the Lord, if you're despising his word, that is a scary place to be. The picture of the man being stoned outside of the camp of Israel is just a tiny little foretaste of what the ultimate destiny of those who reject God in this life will look like. It's the eternal torment and suffering outside the camp in the very pits of hell. And if this is where you are today, plead with the Lord that he would show you your sin, that he would awaken your conscience, that the blood of Jesus Christ would purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That we would come to him and say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this purification offering that he has offered on our behalf. Without seeing even the smallest sin as significant in God's eyes, we won't properly understand his grace in Christ. Though your sin renders you guilty, you are forgiven when you come to Christ because of his sacrifice. Though your sin renders you polluted, you are cleansed because of Christ's sacrifice. And the Father gives us his Holy Spirit to convict us concerning sin that we would see our sin, hate it more, and look to Christ in faith. What a blessing this is. Don't despise or spurn this grace of your conviction of sin. Let it drive you deeper into the heart of Christ to see his grace for you all the more. Let us look to him in prayer. Oh, great God, what a tremendous gift that your word is to show us how guilty we are how we need a blood sacrifice for our sins. And you have given us that in Jesus Christ. We look to you, O Lord, asking that we would be received for his sake, thanking you and rejoicing that we have fellowship with the almighty God of heaven and earth because we have been cleansed, we have been declared forgiven, and we are cleansed in your presence. We thank you, O Lord, for these truths. And now we pray you would, in light of them, equip us to live as your people in this world to honor and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.